Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Joe American, filling in for John Lovitz until we get done with the Mar-a-Lago part or this gross tiresome. I'm Tommy Vitor. <laughs> I do not understand. Welcome to Pod Save America. Why do we think these handsome men are laughing? <laughs> On the pod today, we have civil rights activist Duray McKesson. We're going to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and organizing and protesting in general. Everyone also tune in on Wednesday. Pod Save the World. Very special Pod Save the World. I have Ben Rhodes, who was really one of the closest advisors, period, to President Obama for all eight years. Brilliant guy. We talked about everything under the sun, uh, including his leading of the Cuban negotiations. So it's a very cool episode. Tune in. He lets it rip, I understand. He lets it rip. <laughs> Outstanding. Also, it is the last day to buy merch, guys. Yes, cottonbureau.com slash crooked. I, I know this is already tiresome, but once <laughs> it will be better when we're in the Mar-a-Lago part. And then I'll It'll leave. be better once people have the context for why you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the She Commerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. And Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Okay, guys, I want to start with a, a national security question for Tommy. Mm. Tommy, let's say that you're president and a call comes in that North Korea just launched... <laughs> an intermediate-range ballistic missile in the direction of South Korea. Uh, you're at your private club that you're still profiting off of as president, um, and you're eating dinner with the Japanese prime minister. What do you do? Do you, do you A, go to a secure location and take the call, or B, just, you know... Just just grab a cell and uh, and start chatting. Yeah, I think at a bare minimum, maybe you go upstairs to uh, to one of the rooms you own. I mean, the North Koreans do this stuff a lot. They tested twenty ballistic missiles in twenty sixteen alone, and they often do it for maximum PR value and to try to get attention. So this is not new, but it's it's troubling. And I, I was thinking back to the first time this happened when we were in office. 
It was April of 2009. We were in Prague to deliver a speech about uh, nuclear nonproliferation. The president was. Mm -hmm. And he was woken up at 430 in the morning to get briefed on a missile launch. And what he did then was convene the call with the secretary of state, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, his national security advisor, secretary of defense. Right. And then Hillary got working and she talked to the South Koreans, the Russians, the Chinese, the Japanese to start the process of coordinating on sanctions. So obviously we didn't solve the North Korea problem that day or any day after. But like that's kind of the play you run in response to this sort of provocative act. Now, Trump, like let's set aside the irony of him running an entire election based on Hillary's email security, right? Trump and his goons running around trying to manage this thing in an unsecure, crowded restaurant is just absurd. It's a horrendous process. And the result was equally as bad because he made this statement with the Japanese prime minister where Abe did all the talking. Trump didn't condemn the launch. He didn't mention South Korea. They didn't issue a joint statement. He kind of just made this clunky So aside, from the, aside from the OPSEC here, let's separate them both out, right? What so is OPSEC? Let's, let's, let's what is OPSEC? You're speaking in these cold <laughs> words. <laughs> the operational security. Um, let's talk about the substance of the response. Yeah, so let's do the substance of the response and, and of North Korea. Because you, you were telling us that this scared the shit out of you. Well, I mean, the, the operational security side, like, we don't know what what documents they were looking at. They probably weren't like waving around classified matters. It was probably they were looking at like a statement. So whatever. Let's set that aside because we just don't know. Uh, On the substance, I mean, it was just, you know, when Iran tested a missile, they sent out General Flynn to demand uh, to put Iran on notice, right? The the statement from Trump was kind of half-assed and weird, and I didn't really, it didn't really work. And it's just, you know, substantively, when The North Koreans launch a missile like this. They're not just doing it for the sake of doing it. They're usually testing something that you can then apply to a future weapon system. So they're trying to get to a place where they can put a nuclear warhead on an intercontinental ballistic missile that could reach the United States. They don't currently have that capability. We don't think Mm. um, the mid-range missiles they have could hit like Guam, but they could certainly hit Japan or South Korea. But it's a very real threat. And this might be the biggest threat Trump faces uh, as president. Is, is when they hit this threshold of a nuclear device that they can deliver on an ICBM. And we're not, his response was just ad hoc and it didn't do anything to reassure our allies. And so, so that's scary enough. And but it's all going down in the middle of the dining room at, at Mar-a-Lago. Yes, America is a wonderful country. <laughs> you come here, you get a job as waiter. You get to see President of the United States doing highly, <laughs> highly sensitive classified uh, meetings in wedding. I'm serving I- uh, iceberg wedge salads, and I'm hearing incredibly interesting things. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm thinking this country, man. I and you know, I, I come here with nothing but babushka doll. <laughs> John Lovett and, got a job as a foreign, a Russian intel agent at the Mar-a-Lago. He's, he's a waiter now. That's 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 why this has been that's happening. Really, really, I'm thinking twice about having suggested this last night. Do we do we do, do we think this has run its course yet? Yeah, I think, so. yeah, I think it's pretty good. Hold on, let me let so me let me, sw- let me switch out. Hold on, let me get John. Hey guys. <laughs> um, well done. So good job. CNN had this story last night about what was going on at Mar-a-Lago. I mean. Just reading a few things from the story. As Mar-a-Lago's wealthy members looked on from their tables and with a keyboard player crooning in the background, Trump and Abe's evening meal quickly morphed into a strategy session. The decision-making on full view to fellow diners as described in detail to CNN. The patio was lit only with candles and moonlight, so aides used the camera lights on their phones to help the stone-faced Trump and Abe read through the documents. Operational Security 101. How's that, Have your cell phone on with a light pointed at a document. That will keep it safe. Someone's at a cell phone with a light on it's like, 
like a like portable commercial like satellite truck. Yeah. <laughs> I, I talked to a, uh, some people today. I think they were sort Ooh, of reporting. Going, I think they were going over the language of a possible statement or communique or joint statement or whatever it might be. That said, like. Go somewhere else, guys. I, like he, clearly, he loves being in the center of a play about him, right? He loves this. This is the coolest thing ever to Almost be playing as if he president. Was a reality television star. Exactly. This was, I, I, it was actually breathtaking. Like, it is, I, I was reading and I was just gasping alone in my house. You know, there's a, some, some dingus who's a member of Mar a Lago took a picture with the guy holding the nuclear football. I saw that. Um, you have people taking photos. Like, Regardless of whether it's classified or not, this is really sensitive. It's actually really useful information mm-hmm. for our for our adversaries to see how decisions are made in real Definitely. time. And uh, I, like, I guess when I heard that Mar-a-Lago was going to be the winter White House, uh, for me, like, what all I heard was conflicts of interest. He's going to make money off of this. He's a he's a scheming, uh, uh, grifting guy. Yeah, it, it was never, hard to figure out what the problem was. It never occurred to me that. It was like a an, it was going to continue to be a club with events, and he'd be right. like having Abbe down like after a golf tournament and some wedding where they're serving shrimp cocktails. Right. So let, let's say this happened at the White House. They could have walked downstairs into the White House Situation Room. They could have had a secure video conference with the Pentagon, with our ambassador in South Korea, with anyone else we needed to in the entire world. We could have had satellite imagery up. We could have seen the telemetry of the missile in real time from the Pentagon. I mean, there's like a million ways you could have known exactly what was happening faster than, you know, Googling it or whatever or, they were doing on their cell phones. Even if you were at Mar-a-Lago and this went down, right? Like, we've all been on, I mean, you were just saying, we've all been on the road on, yeah. in, in foreign countries with the president when something of national security importance goes down, and they have these rooms called yeah, you have a, skiffs. Yeah, I mean, you have a secure room. Basically, you take over an entire hotel room, you set up a tent so no one can monitor you via video. You, there's a sound machine so no one can, can listen to the audio. You have secure communications capability. You know, it's a great make work when you're on the road because the president needs to get his PDB. That said, he should, you know, but he's go not to even, the White House, man. But he's not even on the road. You know, they're, know, they're, they're know. clearly he's planning. The he's, they're clearly planning to use Mar-a-Lago, which means the national security apparatus should be setting up uh, rooms at, there permanently yeah. to have these conversations the same way Bush did at Crawford, um, you know, when he was wrecking things. And they may be doing that, but it, clearly it's not prepared. And if if it was prepared, why they didn't simply retire down to that room is, is a mystery to me. And just the like. The, the 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 hypocrisy of the, the campaign. I know. The campaign was about her fucking emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know everyone's been saying this, but it's I just know. it's like so. Well, the, there's there's a bigger problem with the NSC, and I don't know if you want to to transition into that now. But before, it's before a lot we go, of I just, I, well, I want to. The, the one more funny part is uh, this goes to the the, the pay to play part. Uh-huh. Um, at one point, is this all going? Is this all happening? There's a wedding at Mar-a-Lago as well, <laughs> and so Trump says to the um, Trump. Trump wants to go say, see the wedding, so he takes the Japanese prime minister and said, "He said, I said to the prime minister of Japan, I said, come on, Shinzo, let's go over and say hello." <laughs> first of all, you're not really supposed to call him by his first. You know name. what? Yeah, that's, that's okay. That's okay. Let's let's not worry about that part because you're getting to the sure. best part. Come on, Shinzo. Uh, so they go over there. He says they've been members of this club for a long time. Trump said of the newlyweds. They've paid me a fortune. <laughs> Great. Great. Come, I just, come meet them. The, the, it's so sad that all these foreign leaders are going to come to this country. They're going to meet with our president. And they're going to go home. And they're going to be like, guys, it's fucking nuts. And I it's don't know. Li- it's as nuts as you think it is. And the, and the, wonder, having... It's going to be most embarrassing, like, imagining the foreign leaders call each other. Yeah. You like, know, like, 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 like Abe calls Merkel and was like, you wouldn't believe what just happened this weekend. It's like you've ever, it's like, it's like, you, 
I, I just hate that like Justin Trudeau is going to go home and have a bunch of really funny stories that he's telling his buddies <laughs> up in Canada. And it's like, hey, I, I, don't make fun. I don't want to be on. It's America, man. Yeah. I don't like that your stories are about us and I'm sympathetic to them. Well, you know, in, in the backdrop of all this is that Trump has been just demagoguing the fact that the Japanese don't pay us enough for the defense capabilities we give them. Right. And then you, you have a population of people that are living in the fear of being nuked by a madman in North Korea, and Trump's just like putzing around in Mar-a-Lago with him. I mean, this is not a serious response to a very serious threat. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. Dog. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. Everything that happened in Mar-a-Lago this weekend, it's sort of a backdrop to larger issues with the National Security Council that are sort of coming to a head today. Um, Not just with National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who he could be fired by the time you listen to this podcast, or he could be there another four years. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. We Uh, have jinxed things a few times, so it'd be nice if you were fired while we were doing this. No predictions here, but it it looks like uh, he's on thin ice, many people are saying. So the New York Times story, which is very fascinating, uh, is called Turmoil at the National Security Council from the Top Down by David Sanger. Uh, It's based on two dozen current and former National Security Council officials commenting to David I love the sourcing on these stories. Like The Washington Post had nine people saying, that, that Flynn had talked about uh, <laughs> sanctions with the Russians. Like, they're getting you guys nine, dead to rights. Nine sources. I think, I think we've got it. Look, it's so funny to be like, I have eight, but I'm not that. I want to get one more. One more. <laughs> Tommy, as a, uh, as a former staffer at the NSC, what were some of the most troubling things about this story for you? I mean, what's most dis- disconcerting to me is how disorganized the NSC sounds. Because it, this sounds funny, but like, the, the National Security Council lives and dies by good process. Like, paper and how it's worked and who gets to see it when is very important. Um... They run, you know, you run a process where hard, hard questions are debated at lower levels. They make as many decisions as they can, then they run it up to the deputies. And then by the time it gets to the national security advisor or the president, things should be worked over. And you should have worked out the details of, say, banning all Muslims. So, so, but like, tell me what the National Security Council does. Like, it, it, it is a bunch of different agencies. And the, the NSC, the National Security Advisor, is charged with convening all the relevant component parts of the government that do national security. So when the when General Flynn hosts a principals committee meeting with Steve Bannon on his right, he's got the Sep- Secretary of Defense, DOD, I'm sorry, DOD, State Department, like the intelligence community, all the relevant players, and they come together to make these decisions. What It just sounds like these meetings are not happening on a regular basis. Uh, the the staff is full of career people that come over from agencies. They're really apolitical professionals. Those people are all running out of the building because they don't like the way things are run. They feel like it's being politicized. And frankly, it sounds like no one wants to work for General Flynn, who himself is probably not ready to lead this organization. <laughs> you see that people are bringing Make America Great mugs to national security meetings? Yeah. <laughs> Which is know. a small, silly point, you know, but it's, it's just <laughs> like, it's sort of like indicative of the overall feeling here. It's, and also like, well, the scarier point is I saw that 
It said they said that Steve Bannon is like convening a shadow national security council without some of the career experts. Yeah, and who happened, knows who's in that? This stuff was happening with Cheney, right? He was run his own shadow process, and it was a disaster. Like a good process doesn't guarantee a good outcome, but a bad process guarantees a bad outcome. And like you also read that there are insider threat programs going on where they're investigating people within the NSC to see if they're leaking. Meanwhile, Flynn's leaking to the Russians and, like about sanctions <laughs> relief. Like. And Donald Trump is using a compromised Android phone at Mar-a-Lago to make national security decisions. It's, so it, it's a problem. I was saying this last night. You know, we read the news to get ready for this podcast. Um, at least I try to. I rely on John and Tommy to do most of the work. But um, reading the news last night felt like the scene in Ghostbusters where Sigourney Weaver opens the fridge and she's like, you know, I was seeing this Flynn story, and I'm like, wait a second, that's an egg cooking on the counter. <laughs> and then I'm reading a little bit more of the details, and it says that uh, Madison was ordered basically a war against Iran, and then yeah. kind of changed his mind at the last minute because it leaked. And then you open the fridge, and it's like, there's a fucking monster in it. It's like, there is no Obama, only I, I Trump. Want, I want to talk about that point about Madison, <laughs> too, because everyone's like, Mattis is the safe one. Mattis is the one that who's going to get us through part. the next four years. But Mattis was like, yeah, we were almost going to like go... What, what a was, firefight with Iran. No, what was no, going no, no, no. It, it, it's, it's not that bad. It, the Iranians ship weapons to the Houthi rebels who are there aligned with against the Saudis. This mm-hmm. happens fairly regularly. We've interdicted a number of ships sending over this stuff. What it sounds like is he had his eye on a boat and he wanted to interdict it, which is fairly standard, but was worried, given how bad the Yemen operation had gone, that if this thing devolved uh. into a shooting war, this could be us versus Iran. And that's like, was just too much for the load to bear. Now, I don't know the details of this. So it could have been um, a responsible decision then. It, it, it sounds like it could have been a responsible decision, but it also sounds like a missed opportunity to collect intelligence and, and prevent a pretty nasty arm shipment from happening. Can we? Can you walk us through why Flynn might be fired in, in that whole talking to the Russians thing? Yeah, I mean, the, the quick and dirty is Flynn talked to Ambassador Kislyak, who's the Russian ambassador to the U.S., a number of times before the election and during the transition. Um when asked about this, they all said he was discussing logistics for a call, and they denied that he ever discussed sanctions and that there was time. Uh, there were discussions during the campaign. Mike Pence, in particular, went out and really put his put his uh, credibility on the line defending Flynn. Now, thanks to the Washington Post and their nine sources, we know that. Uh, those who had access to intelligence reports that monitored those communications between Ambassador Kislyak and whomever he's talking to, in this case it was Flynn, said he did mention election-related sanctions. So it's clear Flynn lied not just to the country but to his own team. And yesterday on the Sunday shows, the little you know elven conservative warrior they sent out, Stephen Miller, wouldn't defend oh, we'll get to Flynn. Uh, and he was like, I don't have any information for you on that. And then you wake up this morning and there's three newspapers saying that Trump's upset with him and he might be done. So Flynn has lost credibility. People didn't think he was up for the job to begin with. He seems like he's cooked. <laughs> Flynn, man. You know, uh, anyway, he sucks. He just doesn't seem smart enough. The, uh, I, 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 like, good point. <laughs> well, the question is, too, the other one is, that was, <laughs> I almost had a really bad spit take on that. <laughs> I saw people wondering if, um, if Trump knew that Flynn was talking about sanctions to the Russian ambassador. And that's the one reason that maybe Flynn doesn't get fired here. Interesting. Stay woke. Uh, because they they won't say either way. Because yeah. Trump is ba- Trump basically said, oh, I don't know. What, what, Trump was asked about this on the plane to Mar-a-Lago by reporters, and he said, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll look into the story. Total lie. Of course, he total yeah. lie. He knew. This is true in, like, any profession. It's true of executives in Hollywood. You can either be stupid or you can be an asshole. 
but you can't be both. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know plenty of stupid assholes. No? Yeah, they don't do that well. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I think the question for Flynn, I mean, there, there's a law called the Logan Act, which, you know, people are talking about whether it's relevant here because you're not supposed to have these contacts with foreign officials. That's probably not going to be enforceable or enforced. The question is, did someone come to him and did he lie to an investigator in the process of these conversations? Did he lie to his own team and lose credibility? I mean, seemingly he's lost the entire national security apparatus of the government. So I don't know how he could stay in that job. Uh couple other tidbits in the New York Times story. There's so much happening. Yeah, let's, I, I want to go through a few more. Uh, and while Mr. Obama liked policy option papers that were three to six single-spaced pages, council staff members are now being told to keep papers to a single page with lots of graphics and maps. Quote, the president likes maps, said one official. So I remember vaguely similar stories about Bush, uh-huh. uh, about how he liked the things to be one page. But I got to tell you. I don't think it should be one page, including illustrations. <laughs> Nine bullets. I mean, was, listen, was we all max. we all been up late the night before a term paper was due, and all it's, of a sudden, ten pages becomes twelve pages because he added a couple pictures. Is Trump a geography buff? I don't know. Now, I, I'll, I'll give credit to our Intel Community and Defense Department. They can produce some pretty cool maps. Okay, you, you, there's some cool stuff you can see visually from these guys. But, well, <laughs> but how about the basic information as well as the maps? In fairness, though, these are a lot of countries Trump is finding out about for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he really doesn't know anything, so it is fair that like you should start with the basics. Come on, Shinzo, we're gonna go bomb this one. <laughs> now, 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 Shinzo, you come from the 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 uh, show the, me your country, show the, me the bunch of islands, but not but not the ones, not the Philippines. That's a different thing. That's a different bunch of islands, Shinzo. Um, also, by the way, just like a small thing, he um he had recently talked to the president of China, so. He thought that Japanese names were organized the same way that Chinese names were. So in one tweet, he goes, it was great meeting with President Shinzo instead of saying President Abe. I did not notice that. You know, the the Chinese media has taken to calling him a paper tiger in print and mocking him with like BuzzFeed style quizzes about why he's weak. Also, that's not going well either. RT is starting to mock him. They're starting to run Saturday Night Live clips. Well, well, you know, it was only a matter of time till uh, till Putin uh, Putin, you know, that worm turned. Right, because Putin's main goal is not to be buddies with Trump; it's to destabilize the United States. And right? whatever, and look, you know, look, uh, we here at Crooked Media cannot confirm the contents of the dossier. <laughs> but uh, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, the, the other part, uh, this goes back to Bannon setting up the Shadow Council. Uh, there was a quote in the story: "For his part, Mr. Bannon sees the United States as headed toward an inevitable confrontation with two adversaries, China and Iran." I mean, Jesus Christ! That might have been the scariest part of the whole, the whole story. I was a because gog. this is the guy running national security essentially. Because Flynn's out there like doing whatever, and you know, probably going to be fired. In Flynn's book, he compares himself to Machiavelli and Steve Jobs. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, think different, Michael Flynn. One way he's thinking different is talking to the Russians about national security. Another, way he's, another way he's thinking different is he was surpri- apparently he was surprised to know that you couldn't just like ship more arms to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got to tell you, like, there, uh, this story is incredible, but there are parts of the story I'm like, all right, that's the part that every every administration goes through learning the different parts of the levers of the government. I'm I'm like uh, I don't know that a three star general who ran the defense intelligence agency. Yeah, should he, know was that the, he was the head of the like, DNI, man. The I was trying to I was trying to find yeah, one thing, but now nah, he's terrible. no. I, I mean, I, look, that's one of those things that could be a garble and someone treating him unfairly. Yeah. But boy, 
yes, there's some pretty well-established procedures for how these things get done. How about how about Katie McFarlane in a national security meeting saying that we need to make America great again? It, 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 and that was like an all-hands-all-staff. And those those are the people that are all career staffers who don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Can you imagine people with their notebooks like, i got to take notes in this meeting. And she's like, she, make America great again. Okay, she, let me she write is that not down. Up, she is not up for that job. That is an incredibly hard job. But like the, <laughs> the anecdote that shocked me or that made me laugh really was her giving people like the wrap it up like oscar style thing at nsc meetings i like that i mean i think that's a great idea <laughs> yeah those meetings are <laughs> people way talk long. way too long in meetings the, let's wrap it up i yeah you should you I, give, I, give, I give love at that sign every once in a yeah. while the it hurts my, guys it hurts my feelings you guys i don't think you all realize how often my feelings are hurt while recording the podcast <laughs> are, we, are, we, are, we gonna, are we gonna sit down on the no, couch again but the other the other <laughs> the other thing uh the, the, i would say that the, the, the saddest part of the story, the most pitiable part of the story, is when um, there's a a, na- a bunch of national security uh, uh, officials are having a conversation about whether or not they should start writing draft tweets. That that yes. oh, in the hopes so of getting sad. them to Trump Feeding and maybe influencing. I, but that's that's my point about like there's there's not serious meetings going on with a process that are leading to decisions and policy ideas. It's the NSC is getting together to like write tweets. That is not a good well, use of it's, time. You see, it's like like these 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 uh, uh, staffers who are not political are just there for years and years, just like not knowing what to do. And like these are such dedicated people. Like they are serious. They got their pleated pants and they do their best <laughs> and they love this country and they really really care and they are not funny because I tried making jokes and it doesn't work. And you just, I feel bad because I just know how deeply they want to do a good job for the yeah, administration and they're not given the ability to do it because they're monsters. I think some of them are funny. Um, aside from <laughs> some of them are funny. Aside from the New York Times story, there's also, by the way, that Observer story that said that the intel community is withholding information from Trump because they're worried that the Russians might find out. And, it, and the senior DOD official says. They they're in this. The Russians are probably in the sit room. Like, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know what to make of what that. Do you think? Like, a, that's. I'm worried that they think that. I'm equally as worried if the rogue national security agency is deciding that they don't have to give the president of the United States the information they're collecting. Like that too is not, not acceptable. That is <laughs> that is that is coup light. <laughs> well, you know? at the same, I mean, this is listen. A they, lot these of bad guys always here. support. There will always be in things where. The CIA is not going to the president every time and saying we got we pay off Bob Smith in this government to get this. Like they, they don't. There's a need to know for some of these things, but you know the the goal of intelligence is to help you make a better decision, and they need to give him everything he needs to make good decisions. Yeah. So Flynn's Flynn's on the ropes, possibly, um, but apparently he's not the only one. Uh, our friend Ryan's Priebus uh, is nah. in a little bit of is in a little bit of trouble. Uh, this uh, the guy Weird. that runs. Can I? I'll, uh, you want to do this? Newsmax, I'll do this. I'll do ready. this because this gave me such uh, uh, joy, uh, Schadenfreude, if mm-hmm. you will. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so is that a Russian word? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. So uh, Trump gets a Friday night drink. Well, Trump has a soda, and this guy, the head of Newsmax, Chris Ruddy, Chris Ruddy, Chris Ruddy, yeah. uh, who's his old friend. They have a thirty-minute uh, uh, jam sesh. And then, <laughs> and then, of course, Chris Reddy goes to Twitter and goes, like, just had a, th- uh, which is just so pathetic. pathetic. But he goes to Twitter and he's like, just had a 30 minute conversation with President Donald Trump. Uh, he's got this thing in hand. <laughs> That's like legitimately what he said. Okay, so they have a 30 minute conversation. Then all of a sudden, over the next two days, Chris Reddy takes to the streets t- telling anybody who will listen, Reince Priebus has to go. Reince Priebus is dropping the ball. It's all Reince Priebus' fault. He's the one who failed on the executive order. He's the one who can't wrangle process. He can't tell the president, no, uh, he's not up to this job. 
uh, uh, Reince must go, Reince must go. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not seem like a coincidence to me. No, no. Uh, it seems as though Trump spent time with Chris Ruddy to give him this. Imp- you know, look, we don't know what that conversation was, but Chris Ruddy clearly came away from that conversation saying it's my job to go on television and uh, uh, make Reince Priebus look uh terrible. Yeah. The only bit of context I'd add here is that Newsmax was doing fake news before fake news was cool. Like, they are garbage. Oh, yeah. yeah um, but, you know, clearly this guy has access. But there was also that Politico story that said uh, that Trump was a little annoyed with Reince uh, and also, of course, our boy Sean Spicer. So, Flynn, Priebus, Spicer. Uh, the Politico story also interestingly said that the only... Um, I mean, people that Trump really likes are Bannon and Gary Cohn because they've made a lot of money. Amazing. Yeah. And, Best uh, anecdote in And Gary thing. Cohn might, is like one of the people rumored to be possible chief of staff if, you know. Well, and Gary Cohn is a Democrat. But he's, he's also the he's, former. Unless he's murdered in the middle of the night by Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> former president of Goldman Sachs, Gary Cohn, is now like the most important person in making economic policy. I cannot tell you how satisfying it is to watch Reince Priebus be raised, raked over the coals. Not the first person to make a deal with Donald Trump and then be ruined by it. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two- to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. One person who is not worried about his job in the White House is 31-year-old senior advisor on policy and top speechwriter Stephen Miller. This is this guy is quite a fucking character, let me tell you. It's so dark. A native of Santa Monica, right here in Los Angeles, went to like Stephen Miller's, if you look at his whole backstory, it is like such a story of like conservative oppression. This man was, this kid was so oppressed at liberal Santa Monica High School because he had to go to school with Latinos and Asians, right? And uh, not everyone was speaking English all the time, so he decided to like yeah. mock them. Yeah, right. he he had trouble making friends because of his ideology. Yeah, really? yeah, sure, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> he was he ran for, he ran for student government president and was booed off stage by four thousand people. That's all you have to know. And, <laughs> and apparently he relishes it. Like if like when people don't like him. He he likes it, which is sort of a. You know like, what this reminds me of actually a lot is uh, Ted Cruz, which is yeah exactly. Uh, um, uh, it takes a lot to be the kind of person so despised at every stage of your life that at every stage of your life, all these people emerge to say, "I knew Steve, and he's the worst." And you get this sense that this is just a giant bit of payback to all the people who said he was who said he wasn't cool, who didn't want to dance with him. I don't know, yeah. but he is. Uh, yeah, he's like, I'll show you. I'm going to go be a nationalist. He, yeah. he came to prominence during the campaign because he would give an entire speech as a warm up to the Trump speech, and and he clearly like adopted the language of Trump because he says things like the powers of the president will not be questioned, which is just eye rolling Trumpy and bluster. But that was guess what, buddy? We're questioning it. And, and protesters and are questioning say, it. Yeah, the we so he was on the Sunday shows. He was on all the Sunday shows yeah. Sunday, which is why we're talking which, about him. Which, and, and it was like the craziest performance ever because yeah. he just like the lies were just was, lying. We I used to think Kellyanne Conway was the was the like the the best liar 
of the whole administration. Not the best liar, but the most joyful liar. Like, she enjoyed telling the mm-hmm. lies, right? She says them with, like, a straight face. Miller Miller's giving her a run for her money because what he was saying about voter suppre- like what he was saying about voter fraud was he didn't just say the lie he then said and and you know I'm right George and it is an indisputable fact and I will go on any show anytime to repeat these claims well, well you know what he should Stephen Miller should come on this show we'll be happy to talk about voter yep, fraud with come him. on on buddy we are uh, happy to talk to you about thing, voter fraud thing, because welcome. everything you said was a fucking lie and and the thing is also like at least with Kellyanne Conway like there's some pathos like you can see that it's wearing on her. She's constantly talking about how grieved she is. Um, there's a real kind of sense of fear in her eyes. Stephen Miller has some dead eyes up there. And it's also really strange to hear this kind of nationalistic Breitbart language with a Santa Monica, California accent. Like, we're going to stop voter fraud. <laughs> you know, this is a, the president will not be questioned. One of, their, one of their favorite new things is saying that thousands of people were bused from Massachusetts to New Hampshire and that changed the result there. Actually, someone tweeted that there were 800 legal observers in New Hampshire, 6,000 election workers, the AG's office looked into it, there were cops, there was not a single report of buses or voter fraud. And the reason this is important, guys, is because these kind of allegations are setting up voter suppression efforts that we need to watch going forward because they're going to try to use them to win more elections. And there's one more fact, too. Uh, uh, I believe Donald Trump could question the results of New Hampshire. He could have done it for like 500 bucks. <laughs> you could have filed a report on these and so could have. Uh, Look, uh, what's her name? The, the, the Republican Steve, who lost to Hasten. Hasen. 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 Stephen Miller said anyone involved in New Hampshire politics knows this is a problem. Immediately afterwards, the uh, former Republican attorney general, state GOP chair, all these Republican politicians in New Hampshire said, absolutely, voter fraud has not been a problem here. Republican politicians. And he said anyone would tell you it's a problem. No one would tell you it's a problem. Also, he has this whole thing where he said it is an indisputable fact that 14% of non-citizens are registered to vote in this country. That is completely false. The people whose study he referred to has said that's false. They wrote the study. And and he was so so sure that it's true. It is not true. He he is... these people are such bad people. We're just like this guy sort of should wish not that be some in the, the White House. He I sort of wish nowhere. that some of the Sunday show hosts were armed with a few more of these facts on voter fraud because I mean, at some point you just gotta you can't have the you only have ten minutes with him, so you can't keep going. They were and going. Pretty, you know, I watched uh, the George was angry. George yeah. is very he didn't angry. Have, he didn't have, but he said something. You provide the evidence, and of course, Stephen Miller has no evidence because there is no evidence. Um, yeah, man. I mean, it's just the the uh, we're Stephen just like, Miller. Stephen Miller's on all the, rise. the worst people are just empowered. It is really bad. Yeah, and Trump loves them now because um, he's willing to lie for him. Uh, one more thing. One more Republican to complain about outside the administration <laughs> before we uh, before we get to our. Guests. I don't even know what this is. Uh, this is Jason Chaffetz. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> so the town halls are going very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, guys, next week is recess, congressional recess. We'll probably give you some more information because we, you know, it's going to be very important to get to all of your congresspersons uh, town halls. In fact, someone on uh, Laura Olin on Twitter uh, who had worked on the Obama campaign at some point, she had a good suggestion, which is that if your representatives don't hold town hall next week, you should hold one yourself. I love that. Invite them. Make it public. Gather a crowd. Take some photos. Like It's a good idea because mm-hmm. there are going to be – we were looking around here next week and there's some – like the Republicans around here have already uh, have already had their town halls. Yeah, sorry, Daryl. I said you're not going to see our shiny faces. <laughs> <laughs> but if your representative is not holding a town hall, you should just hold one yourself. Um, so there's these these town halls are happening, and in places like Utah, where Jason Chaffetz is uh, represents Utah's third district, um, he goes to his town hall and he is overwhelmed with. 
uh, people there who were just, you know, complaining about him wanting to repeal the Affordable Care Act, complaining about him not investigating Trump, even though he's the head of the Oversight Committee. And so Chaffetz is interviewed and he says um, this was more of a paid attempt to bully and intimidate me rather than a true showcase of how voters felt in his district. He called them paid protesters. Then you look at some of the videos and it's like a 10 year old girl. I I watch this thing and like. The people raised their hand and said, hi, you know, my name is Sarah, and I just want you to know I am not a paid protester. I am a constituent, and I'm here to talk to you. You know, the, this was as as rough and tumble and real as it gets. I mean, these were not <laughs> – the paid protester thing is so stupid. It's so stupid, but it's also so sinister. It's like he – these people take time out of their day to come to a town hall and talk to their representative about what bothers them. And then he goes – he doesn't – he's too he's too much of a coward to tell them that they're paid protesters to their face. He goes to the press afterwards and tells the world that these people who took time out of their day to go see him are being paid money yeah. to do so. He goes to In-N-Out with a Washington Post reporter and he rags on his constituents as some big D.C. media Five guys. Journalist. And actually, yeah. I will <laughs> say – and also, it, um, it was especially disappointing because I have to say, you know, watching Chaffetz up there – he really did take a lot of questions. He talked to a lot of people who opposed him. Like, he did actually, I think, handle it the way I think a congressperson should handle it. I mean, just to give him credit for one second. And then to turn around and say none of it was real is ridiculous. Don't you think that uh, Evan McMullen should run against Jason Chaffetz? Yep. Yes. Evan, friend of the pod, get in there. So it was in that longer Washington Post story that you referenced, Tommy, that Chaffetz was thinking in 2020 might run for governor. Um, You should, fuck, fine. Evan. McMullen should go do it then. Utah. It's yours. Jason Chaffetz is is sort of a dangerous person to have in a leadership position because he just won't do anything to put any real oversight on Trump. Yeah, I mean. That's his job. That's his job. It's actually supposed to investigate. We should step back from this for a second because. What we're seeing at Mar-a-Lago is so galling and and, and so breathtaking. Uh, all these violations that the Trump administration um, is doing, all, you know, you see more and more stories about his sons continuing to go off to foreign countries to make deals. All of it is happening, and 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 it's and it's exasperating. But we should remember why it's exasperating. It's exasperating because Donald Trump, who has spent his whole life living without consequence, now is a president without consequence because the Republicans have been abdicated their responsibility to just hold a fucking hearing. God damn it. It matters. It matters. Okay. When we come back, we will talk to someone who has been at the center of an organizing movement over the last couple of years, DeRay McKesson. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Reclaim your time. Now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World, there's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to Listen to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. Yeah. That's two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. On Pod Save America today, we have civil rights activist DeRay McKesson. DeRay, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. Good to have you. So we were just talking about protests and organizing. We were talking about some of the town halls. You obviously have a ton of experience that, with this. You were uh, one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement. So I think BLM was extremely successful in, in changing the conversation about race and police violence in America, um, particularly you know, raising awareness. What are some of the lessons you learn from the movement that you think could apply to the resistance today? Yeah, so, so many things. So 
The first thing is that I think about protests is this idea of telling the truth in public, that what we did with our bodies is that we told the truth that Mike and Rakia and Ayana and so many people should be alive, that we disrupted board meetings and commissions, so the truth that they weren't using their institutional power in ways that benefited the lives of people of color. And I think what we've seen spread across the country, not only for the past two years, but definitely since January 20th, is people more, even more people willing to tell the truth in public, like to put their bodies on the line and to and to see that as like a valuable thing. It is sort of interesting that two years, you know, two years ago, it was not cool to be a protester, right? It was like, I remember people who, who loved us as people were like, this is not the right way to do it. And now it's like, everybody's a protester, which is, I think, good for democracy. Uh, Interesting to look back on. The second thing is that we aren't born woke, but something wakes us up. And I'm mindful that like, for some people, it really is like a tweet or a poster or a Facebook post, like that random conversation. And it reminds me that, like it's sometimes a small stuff that like helps people understand that they have a stake in this. And like you said, you know, I, I think for two years we were fighting the awareness battle that we're trying to convince people that there was a problem. You know, people didn't believe that the police in 2016 killed three people a day. Like they just didn't believe it. And we won the awareness battle. I think that after the awareness part of the work comes the, the deep organizing. Like can we build an infrastructure that allows us to capture the energy that's out there? I think that that's where we are uh, writ large right now. And you talked about um, something to, you need something to sort of wake you up. Um, you, you know, you weren't born a protester. You didn't do it your whole life. You, you know, you were, um, you were working in schools, you were working in the Minneapolis public schools. And, you know, what was it that made you, you know, get in a car and drive to Ferguson in 2014? What was sort of your, your moment? Yeah, I was, you know, I was a teacher, so I taught sixth grade math uh, in Eastern Europe, Brooklyn, and worked at the Home Children's Zone, opened up an after-school center in Baltimore. So kids, and like the the work of equity in education was always really central to my heart. Uh, and I was in Minneapolis. It was August 16th. Mike, I killed on August 9th. Uh, it was August 16th. I was sitting on my couch. It was 1 o'clock in the morning, and I saw the protest on CNN, and I saw what was happening on Twitter, and they were telling two different stories. And there was something about it that I was like, I, I want to go. I want to see for myself. So... Waited till my best friend woke up. He lived in uh, Chicago with his wife, and I called at like seven fifty nine. It was like, "Hey, Donnie, I think I'm gonna go to St. Louis. What do you think?" He's like, "If you think you should go, you should go." So I got in the car, drove nine hours, ended up in uh, in St. Louis. Had eight hundred followers on Twitter. Didn't know anybody, and that was my story. And if anything, I like felt called at the very least to be a witness, like to just see for myself. And when I got there, the second night I was in St. Louis was the first night of the curfew. It was also the first time that I got tear gassed. And it was in that moment that I was like, this is not the America I know, and I'll do whatever I can to uh, to fight back and, and joined so many incredible people who were willing to put everything we had on the line to, uh, to not be silent. So uh, in the past few weeks, I think we've seen an incredible growth in protest um, and a new like, spirit of protest for a lot of people who've never done it before. And that's that's really incredible and inspiring. And I think it's done a great job of kind of wresting the microphone away from Donald Trump. Uh, however, in some of these protests, uh, you know, as with any giant group of people, you've seen, you know, an occasional trash can get set on fire and all of a sudden there are 200 reporters around it. I know that the Black Lives Matter movement has dealt with this problem, you know, these masses of very peaceful protesters um, then being maligned on places like Fox News. But it all sp- spreads outward from there uh, to the to the more mainstream press. How do you how do you deal with how do you control the message? How do you make sure that that it's being treated fairly and not being kind of maligned by a small segment of a protest? Well, frankly, it's it's a little different now, right? Because there's so many white people that are protesting that it is like a whole different narrative around what force looks like and what violence looks like. But 
I'm mindful that people shouldn't have to protest, right? That like people shouldn't have to be at airports. They shouldn't have to be in the middle of the street. That that people are outside because a wrong has occurred, and, and this is a response to it. So uh, the way people's anger manifests, like I can't manage. I know uh, how I how I encourage people to be out in the street, but I don't have to condone it to understand it. I think about like in Baltimore, I think about Ferguson, so many cities where things didn't go as some people had hoped. Um, like I understand where the anger and pain came from, and I'm mindful that people shouldn't have to be in the middle of the street. I'm also mindful that, that protest is like just one way to build power, right? Protest is not the answer. Just like voting is not the answer. Just like phone calls are not the single answer. There is no one answer. That This has to be a conversation about how do we have as many tools in the toolkit to build power. And I think that that is what I'm hopeful comes next, that like, you know, the awareness battles were, after the awareness battles were movements die, right? They change the conversation. Everybody starts to sort of see the world differently, and, and people think that that is victory. Uh, and victory really is a combination of how do we change systems and structures, right? So, like, how do we make sure there's equity built into systems and structures, and then how do we change minds? Uh, and I think that that is, like, the, the challenge. As all of you know, is as organizers in some way are working for one of the best organizers we've had recently, uh, is that the biggest organizing infrastructure exists around elections, right? It's around charismatic people. On the left, we don't have deep organizing infrastructure that's sustainable across the country that's not uh, used in election cycles. So it'll be interesting to see if we can build that now. Like, can we build a network of canvassers and phone banks and training and stuff like that at scale that, like, will actually... um, become a home for all the energy that's out there right now. So so to that point, in in 2016, you ran for mayor of Baltimore, and I'm wondering what you learned about exactly that, about about translating protests and awareness into electoral support or not, and and what things you felt worked well and what things, you know, we have some work to do to to get those institutions in place. Yeah, concrete, you know, we raised a lot of money online, so I did no call time, which was, you know, (laughs) the first fundraising person we hired quick. The worst. She's like, I'll never work for somebody who does no call time. Uh, and we raised $300,000 in 70 days. It was dope, and we did a lot online, and so that was great. So it made me a believer that, like, if you figure out the right message, that, the, that people can fund these things, mm-hmm. right? There's this myth that, like, you'll never raise money, and uh, and I think that that was shattered for me. The second, though, is that there's nothing that can replace, like, getting in front of real people. So we did a lot of home, uh, like, house parties. Mm-hmm. So people would like DM me and be like, hey, Dre, if I get 40 people in my living room, will you come? And we did it in like all different neighborhoods in the city. And that type of organizing infrastructure is incredible. But again, it only exists around sort of election cycles. So how do we build that when it's necessary, but there's not an election coming up, I think is interesting. And then it's like the the nuts and bolts, like no poll can replace uh, the importance of like knocking on doors and, and those sort of like just nuts and bolts sort of things that we uh, did well that I think I didn't appreciate as much until the end of the campaign. That like I did a lot of community forums, uh, which were fine, uh, but they were a lot of decided, right? Like people were only coming to community forums who absolutely knew who they were going to vote for. That uh, I would have done a lot more neighbor, uh, sort of talks in living rooms and uh, door knocking at the beginning of the campaign that I didn't do. And well, the the last thing is that people are so people are not used to actually hearing solutions that we've been like tricked to believe that repeating the problem is actually a solution. So you'll be like, what are you gonna do about schools? And people will be like, schools are so bad. And people are like, yes. And you're like, well, that wasn't an answer, right? Like that was not <laughs> an answer. Um, but people are like used to that cycle. And I didn't 
realize that until I had to sit on a million panels and literally heard people be like, schools are bad. And you're like, that wasn't an answer. Yeah. Uh, but people are just so used to that. Did you have to deal at all with, I mean, the interesting thing about the transition between protesting into politics and specifically electoral politics is that politics necessarily requires compromise, right? And then as you start making those compromises to be in elected office and to be part of the system, then there are people from your organizing and protest days who will say, oh, you're selling out now, right? Because you made this compromise. How did you, how did you deal with sort of that, that challenge, right? That to between protest and electoral politics? Yeah, it was hard at the beginning, right? I think that one of the things that I came to appreciate at the end was that this quest for purity will always uh, lead you astray, right? That there's like no way, like this ideological purity that people try to have is just like impossible. So I think about on the campaign, people would be like, Dre, you've not done anything in Baltimore. And it's like, I don't know. I literally don't know what else I could do, right? It's like I opened up an after-school program. I was a community organizer when I was 15. I trained a third of all the teachers in the school system for two years. Like, you know, but it didn't matter to people. Like, it was like if I have not, if they did not personally see me on their block, I was not never an organizer. You're like, okay, that is crazy, right? Like, that's wild. Um, or there were people who just like, I think about one of my biggest contentions with the Hillary-Bernie battle that happened this last election, is that people forgot that we live in a world of real choices, right? That we don't yeah. live in the world of ideological purity. We live in a world of real choices. And like the false equivalencies that happened uh, around that campaign were really hard. And I came out supporting Hillary in the end, and people were like, you sell out. And you're like, well, I don't know what you... What, one of these two people is probably going to be president. I prefer this one over the other one. She's not perfect, but like you were willing to sacrifice everybody on the stake of like she's not perfect and like that is just a wild thing uh, to live in so i'm not willing to sacrifice uh, real people's lives for this mythical ideological purity right and all the and these differences become magnified through the media and through social media too right yeah and that that's what we always say here it's like there are real differences between these candidates i mean we were talking about this at our live show in brooklyn on friday with the dnc candidates right like i think that sometimes the differences between these candidates are magnified in a way that it's like yeah they're all progressive they'll all be really great right like people saying like if, if you know if tom perez wins the democratic party is done or if keith ellison wins the democratic party is too far to look like guys they're, they're not that different right Right. No, not at all. And I was just with both of them. And the Pete, I don't know how to say his last name. Pete, Buttigieg. Um, Buttigieg. We learned it. <laughs> Mayor Pete. I practiced it 20 times before we interviewed him. <laughs> Buttigieg. I like him. I like had never heard him talk before. Um, Got to tell you, there is a groundswell on Pod Save America for a mayor named Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah, he was like really, I had a one-on-one with him. I was like, I like this guy. But yeah, people, the Tom and Keith thing, you're like, guys, this is not, but people are like, you know, people were in my mentions when I tweeted this picture of me and Tom, and they're like, you fraud, I can't believe you sold out. He's neoliberal. It's like, I don't think you even know what neoliberal means. <laughs> I, I, I think you just, like, using words. <laughs> Dre, you said something earlier that was interesting to me, which was, how do you get people to believe something so awful, like three uh, police shootings a day, that they just don't want to believe? And I feel like the Hillary campaign faced a similar issue. It was like, no one could believe that our election was actually hacked by the Russians. It was just too bad to believe. And there's this like major obstacle to, to getting people to come to terms with these things. I'm wondering, or, or just how bad Trump is now. Yeah. What did you learn about how to how to break through that barrier? Yeah, I think that one of the things I'm sensitive to is that I think the left gets seduced into this notion that the best idea wins. Uh, and I think what is probably more true is that the idea that gets beat into people's head the most wins. Mm -hmm. And I think that what 
was potentially easier for us because the police were literally killing people. So it was like, hey, do you see that person who, like, they killed? Um, we're just, like, repeating simple truths over and over and over again. And I think that that helped. And also reminding people that this is, like, your grocery store, right? That person got killed at your grocery store, and that person got killed at your gas station. And, like, mm-hmm. this idea that the trauma is actually really close to you, whether you see it or not, right, that it's coming, that it's there. I think that in this current landscape, that's what the right does really well, right? Simple messages, like it's not, death panels is not a very complex idea. It's a simple message. Uh, and they just repeat it over and over and over. And then the left, what the left does is like tries to add nuance. And the, ch- the challenge with nuance is while it might be factually true, it's just hard to repeat over and over. So if your response to death, pan- death panels is like, well, section 3000 of like the Affordable <laughs> Care Act doesn't actually reference that. Like nobody ca- like right. nobody's listening to you that. Lost. And I think that we haven't figured out how to like just distill these simple messages. And with Hillary, I think that one of the big sort of missed opportunities of her campaign was that there was no real surrogate. So you think about like Katrina Pearson, we all know Katrina, right? Like bullet necklace and all, we remember her on the news. Yeah. And you think about Killer Mike with Bernie. It's like there were there's a section of America who didn't know who Killer Mike was before he mm-hmm. became sort of a stump guy for Bernie, and he was really effective. And it's like, well, who was stumping for Hillary? I don't really know. Like, I don't know who was talking about her $100 billion economic investment plan in low-income communities or her plan to undo the crime bill or the nuances of the way she wanted to deal with police. Like, I don't know who was saying that. Is there anyone you see out there right now, a Democrat that you think is speaking in that kind of clear, simple way that really drives home the point of you know, what our policies will do that are better than the Republicans, what Trump is doing wrong, that sort of speaks in that way. That's not about persuasion, but about hammering a point home. Uh, you're trying to get me in trouble. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> you don't have to answer. You're free to say whatever you want here. Is this, uh, safe? this is just a place where we can have a conversation. It's uh, a delight. I think that, uh, I think, I think that the normal cast of truth tellers is like Warren, um, Booker. I've heard a lot that like, Kamala Harris is, is starting to uh, like use our voice in powerful ways, given that she's new. Um, but I don't know if there's like, I don't know if we have the person yet, right? Like the person. Yeah, I don't think like, we do. I mean, I, really I haven't seen it. To, I mean, I'm sitting right here, guys. <laughs> Love it, <'cause> it's <laughs> I mean, you, you are the speechwriter. You're the, you guys are the communications guys. So yeah, well, I don't think we have it yet. I think we might be close. I, people are still really timid, you know, I think I fear that the Democrats might take the high road to oblivion, right? That we might mm-hmm. like, you know, handshake, high five, and wait for the next go round, and then not exist in you know two and four years. Whereas the Republicans are just like really dogged, right? They're like, we don't believe this. They're willing to shut down the whole government, and we're like, you know, we're going to let this nominee go because it might be we might fight for the next one. Whereas the Republicans are sort of like, no, we're going to shut down everything. Yep. And you know, I'm interested to see who's going to show up to the fight on our side. Uh, Dre, last question, and then we'll let you go. Um, tell us a little bit about resistancemanual.org that you uh, that you put together, uh, which is a, a little manual to sort of help help in the resistance against Trump and uh, and other things. Yeah, so it's, it started with this core belief that people need to uh, know information before they take action, right? So, like, it's this get informed, get organized, and and then take action. So we built a wiki, a wiki, a Wikipedia site that literally just logs every single thing about the Trump administration, uh, all the plans, the people, ways to get involved locally, uh, readings that you can do about race and equity, uh, so that people can be informed. One of the things that people would ask over the past few years is like, what can I read? What can I do? And there was just no good repository for that. So we tried to build one. So the resi- resistancemanual.org 
is at place and it's a wiki site. So if other people have things they need to add to it about immigration or about Obamacare or about any issue about uh, what Trump's doing with the disability community, uh, all of those things uh, can be housed there. And we built it for that. So that is just one of the projects that we plan to roll out. But I'm sensitive to, like, people should only take action when they understand. And how do we build uh, mechanisms and spaces that allow people to understand really complex information simply and quickly. Uh, and that's what the Resistance Manual aims to do. Awesome. Well, cool. everyone go check it out. And DeRay, thank you for joining us. Thanks today. for coming. Yeah, you're really good cool. at this. You should do it more. Good to talk. <laughs> Bye, y'all. <laughs> Bye, care. Andrew. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Pod Save America, there are other great new and archived episodes you should go check out. Subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And also, check out Tommy Vitor's podcast, Pod Save the World. Subscribe to that one and don't miss a new episode of Pod Save the World every Wednesday. Thank you very much for joining the pod and take care.